You're listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Caro Cook. Today, we're joined by Kate Judson. Kate is the Executive Director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences. The mission is to make the criminal legal system more fair through reform in forensic sciences, crime labs, and the courtroom. Kate, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really exciting to have you. We've actually never had a guest on our show that whose focus has been in forensic sciences. So I'm super excited to learn about your organization and also about you. Um, could you share with us at a high level about your organization? Yes. So as far as I know, we're the only organization that is exclusively focused on forensic science in the courtroom and the issues that that and the in the issues surrounding that. Um, and we're also brand new. I'm the first executive director. I'm the first staff member at all. And I started about six months ago. So we're so we're pretty new on the scene, but we're doing unique things. And I'm really excited about it. The organization was started by our co-founders, Keith Finley, Jerry Buting and Dean Strang. And the, all three of them are noted lawyers and experts on criminal law. Jerry and Dean are longtime and well-respected lawyers in Wisconsin, uh, but they rose to international prominence after the release of Making a Murderer, which chronicled some of their work as criminal defense attorneys. And Keith Finley uh, is a professor at the UW Law School, the University of Wisconsin Law School. He founded the Wisconsin Innocence Project. His work dovetails with ours in another way, which is that he's a prolific researcher on cognitive bias. And those are the errors that we make simply because we're humans with human brains and they have major impacts on forensic science and criminal law. That's remarkable. And I'm super curious, this is such a unique executive directorship. What's your backstory? Like take us way back, like even to childhood that led you on this path and journey to where you are now? A passion for for criminal justice is in my blood. I am the child of a longtime uh, criminal defense attorney. My father was a criminal defense lawyer and former public defender. Um, and I grew up with that passion ingrained, uh, but I always insisted I didn't want to be a lawyer. And when I ended up in law school, I said, okay, but I don't want to be a criminal defense lawyer. And lo and behold, my first job out of law school was as a public defender, and I absolutely loved it. I think really what I'm trying to say about this is you should listen to your parents and do what they say. Parental wisdom. It's always, uh, it's always a brilliant key to success in life. He definitely knew what he was doing. But I ended up focusing on forensic science, even beginning early on in my legal career, because I had a background in the hard sciences. I have a biology degree for my undergraduate, and I did uh, research science work when I was an undergrad. I, I worked um, in a laboratory that studied um, degenerative diseases. So I have that background. And when I started to practice law, it was really clear to me that a lot of what was being presented in court as forensic science was not very scientific and not very reliable. So I've had that interest for a, quite a long time, since the beginning of my career, and it was only intensified when I started to work on serious violent crimes and capital crimes in my work as a public defender. So that's sort of where, how I got to be where I am. And then thereafter, after my work as a public defender, I became uh, a lawyer for the, I worked for the Innocence Network, and then I worked for the Wisconsin Innocence Project, and then I came to the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences following my, my work at the Wisconsin Innocence Project. 
Were there any events or circumstances during your time period of, of learning and exploring forensic sciences, sciences that really stuck with you that were solidifying as far as like, I really need to do this and pursue this passion? One of my first capital cases, death penalty cases, involved a man who was accused of killing his son. And he was innocent. The entire case against him was built completely on the testimony of expert witnesses who were, who were later shown to be wrong about the way that they had analyzed the science of the case, the data in the case. And that was something that absolutely solidified in my mind the need to address some of these issues and make sure that science presented in the courtroom that could result in someone spending the rest of their life in prison or even being subject to the death penalty needed to be unfailingly correct and fair and reliable. Now, I, I begs the question, how often do cases like this occur where someone's wrongfully indicted? Or is this a very small percentage of accusations? Well, that's a really difficult question to answer. But we know that of the individuals who have been exonerated in the United States, so later who have been convicted and then later shown to be actually innocent, about a quarter of them had bad forensic science introduced at their trial. So it's, it's a significant problem, but it's really difficult to know precisely how many people are affected. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. And how many of them are never exonerated based upon those cases? That's right. And in fact, the, the FBI, when hair comparison analysis, that's where uh, an analyst in a laboratory looks at two hairs under what's called a comparison microscope and compares the two. After some wrongful convictions, the FBI embarked on a really comprehensive review of their cases involving hair comparison analysis with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and also with the Innocence Project. And what they found, admittedly a small subset of cases, but it was a very significant result, which was that over 90% of those cases that they reviewed involved an analyst who either misstated or overstated what the evidence could support. So we know that even in cases where people are not necessarily actually innocent, lab analysts might be subject to these errors of overstating or misstating the science. And how exactly do you and your organization go about reforming forensic sciences and crime labs? Some of the things that we're doing include teaching a course at the University of Wisconsin, which is the one of the first of its kind that really brings together law students and graduate students in the sciences to learn about forensic science side by side, to forge some of the connections that are going to be important in reform in the future and to teach in an interdisciplinary way about these issues. We also consult on cases for folks in the criminal legal system, both prosecutors and defense lawyers, helping them learn about where their evidence could be problematic and where they could potentially be involved in sending an innocent person to prison. We also conduct trainings for lawyers and forensic scientists about the law, about best practices, about how to help mitigate things like cognitive bias, these errors that our brains make sometimes. And we engage in advocacy in cases that raise serious concerns for about forensic science testimony. That's really interesting. Are there any national cases or elements like that where cognitive biases or cognitive bias has really made a major impact on this field? Well, most of the cases that we've seen in the National Registry of Exoneration, so there's a, there's a database that tracks people who are uh, exonerated of crimes that they did not commit, 
after being wrongfully convicted, is that some kind of cognitive bias is present in, in most of these cases. So things like, so cognitive bias can be things like tunnel vision, where investigators think that they know who committed a crime, so they focus on that to the detriment of other avenues of investigation. Other cognitive biases include things like role effects. So that's where someone, by the by virtue of the, the role that they occupy and the job that they do, they might be inclined to view evidence in a particular way that may or may not be correct. So an example of that might be there's been concern lately about forensic science analysts who are housed within law enforcement organizations. So crime labs that, for example, that are not independent of police, uh, of police organizations. And those analysts, by virtue of viewing themselves as, as members of law enforcement, might be inclined to make different kinds of errors in order to help out their colleagues uh, in the law enforcement realm. So those are some sort of categories that, that you might see. Are there particular racial or ethnic groups that are impacted more by this, or is it pretty much common across the board? Well, it could happen to anybody, but just like in every other area of the criminal legal system, people, low-income people and people of color are more likely, and people with disabilities, and especially at the intersections of those identities, those folks are more likely to be victimized by the system and to be, to be wrongfully accused and convicted. What do you consider success for your organization on a, on a short and longer term basis? Well, I think in a short term, there are individual cases that used unreliable forensic science, as well as individual areas of forensic science that are unreliable, things like bite mark matching, right? We know that that's unreliable, but it's still being used. Certain kinds of pattern analysis are pretty universally unreliable, but we know that they're still being used. So those are some shorter term goals. And in the longer term, I think it would be a real success if judges, lawyers, scientists, communities would really take a hard look at the way that we're using science to convict people and take a you know, strong stand to make sure that anything we're using in the system is, is reliable, is accurate, that we can trust it. If there was one message that you would like every judge, police officer, attorney, to know or question for them to ask themselves, what would that be? Well, I think one thing that's really important for people in that position to remember is just because something has been used for a long time doesn't mean it's accurate. And just because it comes from someone who has good credentials doesn't mean it's right. Wow, that's really powerful. How speedily do you think change can be made in this? And what's the most effective way of doing it? I think it's really difficult to put a timeline on it. You know, the the first major government report that really challenged forensic science in a comprehensive way was released 10 years ago. And we're still struggling to get the change that that report identified. So that report made some specific recommendations, including establishing a, a federal forensic science commission, including individual, more individualized reforms, and very few of those of those things have really come to pass and, and the changes that it really recognize these, this need for sweeping changes and those changes haven't been made. There's been quite a lot of pushback from all kinds of actors, including crime labs and law enforcement. So it's really hard to say how long it will take to see the change that we hope to see in the system. And then the other thing that I would note is that forensic science evolves. So we have methods of analyzing DNA, for example, that we didn't have 10 years ago. And those things, just because they're newer, also doesn't mean they're more right. So those things also need to be 
carefully analyzed, thoughtfully used in criminal prosecutions, and really, you know, just carefully tracked to make sure that we're not falling victim to the same kinds of errors and biases that have plagued the system in the past. If there was one thing, one or two things that you could just get rid of or eliminate or just make sure never happened again, as far as ensuring that individuals aren't wrongfully persecuted or prosecuted, one or two of those things be that would help clear up many of these cases? Well, I think that's a tough question to answer. I think I think there are a few things that are really straightforward. So bite mark matching is unreliable and we should stop using it. Certain kinds of cases that fall within the subset of what are, are of what are known as shaken baby syndrome cases, so cases where a doctor sees a particular pattern of bleeding in a child and says that that means that the child was shaken, those are notoriously also unreliable. So doctors shouldn't be testifying that way anymore. And there, I, I think there are a few other things. Um, making a claim that a pattern can be used to uh, what's called individuate a piece of evidence. So being able to say this shoe print came from this shoe to the exclusion of all other shoes, right? That kind of testimony is has has been pretty universally shown to be incorrect. And then there are other myths that still persist, although to a much lesser degree about things like arson, that certain burning patterns signify arson. But really what we're looking for in these cases that we review is not to get rid of every, you know, like I said, we're concerned about wrongful allegations of shaken baby syndrome, and it's not to get rid of every charge of child abuse, right? Because we know that would be wrong. It's not to get rid of every murder charge that might involve a bite or a fingerprint or a shoe print. Instead, what we want is to adopt reform that that limits uh, analysts to testifying only to things that can be well supported by scientific research and to try to insulate some of this really powerful forensic science evidence from, again, these cognitive biases that we all have just by virtue of being human beings. And I, just to note one thing about, you know, I keep saying cognitive bias and I think bias has such a, has such a terrible connotation in our society. When I, when I say cognitive bias, what I mean is the errors in thinking that we all make because we're human beings with human brains. There certainly are cases in the forensic sciences of fraud and malfeasance, but in general, the reason for bad outcomes in our work is because people make mistakes. Mm, that makes so much sense. What's on the horizon for your organization? Uh, we're currently building our supporter base. We're, we're brand new, so we want people to know about us. We want them to know we're out there. We want lawyers um, to know that we can offer consulting and expertise on cases involving forensic science. And we want judges and policymakers to know how much expertise we have to give to the system by virtue of uh, the fact that our board is very experienced in uh, criminal justice issues. Our advisory board runs the spectrum of science and the law and has um, a great deal of expertise to, to lend to these issues. So that's really what we're hoping that folks will know about us. It's remarkable. It's, and you're doing such good work for so many people. And just one life saved is, like they say in the Jewish tradition, it saves an entire universe. What are other ways that our listeners could help you in your mission? 
In addition to getting the word out there about our organization and finding, you know, supporters far and wide who want to take us where good science leads, we need supporters who are willing to support the organization financially. So we're looking for donors and other supporters. We're looking for lawyers who might be interested in giving of their time and of their resources. And we're interested in, in hearing from folks who have a story to share about forensic science and how reform can help. That's remarkable. How do folks find you? We can be found on the web at www.cifsjustice, that's C-I-F-S justice.org. Um, and we also have Twitter and a Facebook presence. That's great. And it's been a real honor to have you here today and, and with the work that you're doing. And I wish you tremendous success in all your worthy endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. You've been listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. If you know an executive director or nonprofit professional that you think I should interview, shoot me an email at bradley at growthexponential.org.